Jesus did not come to condemn sinners, but to convert them and save them from spiritual death. People do not go to hell because they sin. They go to hell because they refuse to trust in Christ's payment for their sin. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. students, if you'd turn to John 3, John 3. Today we're going to look at probably one of the most famous verses, if not the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3, 16, actually 16 through 21. It's very familiar, and because it's familiar, many people assume they understand it, and they gloss over it. However, this verse is really the continental divide in the Bible. In the United States, the continental divide runs right down really the Rocky Mountains, and it determines, it's the name given to the hydrologic divide, water that falls, a raindrop that falls on the eastern side of that divide ultimately winds up in the Atlantic Ocean, and water that falls on the western side of the continental divide ultimately winds up in the Pacific Ocean. A fraction of an inch of difference wherever the rain falls determines a completely different destination. And this passage of Scripture reveals the spiritual divide of the human nature, human condition, I guess. There's a divide in the Bible that this verse illustrates between those who believe and those who don't believe, between the saved and the condemned, between those who love the light and those who love the darkness, between those who perish and those who will have eternal life. In John 3, 16 to 21, these five verses explain that divide and the implications of it, and that's what we're going to look at today. Let's look at the context. Last week, we took a look at Jesus having interaction with Nicodemus. Jesus is in Jerusalem at this point in time. It's the first Passover that John records, and he's doing an extended number of miracles. He's demonstrating his power over death and demons and disease, and many, many, many people are looking at those signs and concluding falsely, concluding that he is a great teacher and only a great teacher. They don't conclude that he is the Son of God, even though he's doing signs that only God can do. And Nicodemus comes and he says, it's obvious that you have supernatural power source, that you come from God because no one could do these supernatural signs without God helping you. So he's been watching Jesus, and you recall, he comes to Jesus by night and wants to have a conversation with him. Nicodemus knows there's a God, obviously, he knows the Old Testament, He knows that humanity is separated from God due to their sin, but he believes that he can earn God's favor, escape hell, and enter heaven if he's moral, virtuous, religious, if he keeps all of the traditions of the elders, which are 613 man-made laws, if he keeps the Mosaic law, in other words, if he practices all the right rituals and all the right uh, religious ceremonies. So he's a legalist. And he's also a religious individual. And he seeks out Jesus because like all self-righteous legalists, he's a hypocrite. And he knows it. He knows he does not keep the law of God perfectly, even though he knows that's what has to happen for him to enter the kingdom of God. And his conscience is bothering him. So he doesn't tell Jesus why his conscience is bothering. He just says, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher. Jesus reads his mind, demonstrating his deity, and he tells him, this unbeliever, this religious unbeliever, that all religion, all human effort to earn God's favor is worthless, counterproductive. It means that the broken relationship with God and man cannot be bridged by human effort. God's standard for moral perfection is 100%, correct? No errors of any kind, and that is impossible because the Bible says that every human being who has ever lived has sinned, has broken God's word, God's will, God's way, 
So Nicodemus has been investing his entire life in a dead end. And Jesus tells Nicodemus right up front, no one gets to heaven based on your own efforts. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, this is born from above, as we talked about last week, which means it's not something humans can do. We had nothing to do with our physical birth. You had nothing to do with your spiritual birth. It is the work of God. Reconciliation between God and man is always initiated by God, not man. God is the one who gives new life, his divine life, to people who are dead in trespasses and sins and unable to respond to God. Humans cannot come to God unless God the Holy Spirit first draws them to Christ, convicts them of sin, and opens their mind and their heart to Jesus Christ. And Nicodemus doesn't believe any of it. He doesn't buy it. Jesus tells Nicodemus in verse 11, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and we testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. Jesus knew that Nicodemus wasn't buying it. Nicodemus has spent his whole life, like many people you know, trying to gain entrance into God's kingdom, trying to buy God's favor through human performance. You know, doing all the rituals, all the good stuff, keeping all the rules, being a good person. And now Jesus tells him that it's worthless and it won't get him into heaven. That was last week. The first 10 verses of this chapter emphasize the word born again. Jesus mentions that five times. Now, born again is a divine prerogative. It's a supernatural, sovereign work. It's done by God. No one is born again on their own. You cannot choose to be born again. God does the borning again. God gives you his life. It is a work of God the Holy Spirit. It's regeneration, the theological term. It's a divine life of God implanted into a human being. Now we're going to shift in verses 11 to 21. The key word is believe. So born again is the first 10 verses. The next 10 verses is the word believe. It shows up seven times in these verses. And Jesus states in verse 15, the core issue here, quote, whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Now what is utterly and completely interesting here is in verses 1 to 10, we see God's sovereignty. Born again is only the work of the Holy Spirit. The only way you can be born again. On the other hand, in verses 11 to 21, where we're talking about believe, we have the doctrine of human responsibility. Everyone is responsible to exercise faith in Christ. So the doctrine of God's sovereignty and the doctrine of human responsibility are like railroad tracks. Twin railroad tracks. And they run parallel, but they never intersect. Right? Salvation is the work of God. Solely. And at the same time, humans are responsible to respond by faith to God's invitation and command to repent and believe the gospel. And both of those are true at the same time. And we don't understand it. And people far smarter than us have spent their entire theological careers trying to put those together. There are things in Scripture that are holy mysteries. The character of God is a holy mystery. God is infinite. Today we're going to be looking at a holy mystery. Jesus says... Salvation is available by faith to whoever believes. Now, whoever means whoever, anyone. And in this context, he's talking to Nicodemus. It means Jew or Gentile. Now, understand, Nicodemus, like all Pharisees, was a racist. He believed that God only loved the Jews and hated everyone else. When the Jews believed, especially the religious leaders, not the common people, the religious leaders believed that when Messiah came, the Jews would be rewarded and everyone else would be punished. So the notion that God would love people the Jews hated was inconceivable, as Vicini says in The Prince's Bride, inconceivable to Nicodemus. There's no way he, I mean, it just blew his mind. He did not comprehend how God would love whoever. That was unbelievable to him. 
Jesus says anyone, Jew, Gentile, can have an eternal life relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And the key for anyone to obtain this eternal life is not by works, not by human effort, not by ritual, not by ceremony, but by simple faith, believing and trusting. Nicodemus must have been asking, why would God give eternal life to anyone simply on the basis of faith? So he answers it, verse 16. Why would God do this? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That verse is the principle. Never in the history of eternity, quite probably, has so much truth been packed in so few words. I spent an hour or two or three trying to figure out how to say this in different words, and I thought, God has said it utterly, simply, elegantly, eternally, the heart of the gospel and the heart of God and his relationship with us and how sinful human beings have a relationship with the Holy God is here in so few simple, elegant words. Let's unpack it. We're going to go through five things with this verse. The motive for salvation is God's love. The motive is God's love, for God so loved. The object of salvation is the world, right? The world. God so loved the world. The action of salvation is God gave his only begotten son. So we have the motive, God's love, the object, the world, the action of salvation, God gave his only begotten son, the means of salvation. How is that accessed? Belief whoever believes in him, and the result of salvation is eternal life. So the motive, God's love, the object, the world, the action, only begotten son, God gave, the means of salvation is belief, and the result of salvation is eternal life. Now, the motive is God's love. Christ came to earth, died for human sin, because and only because God loves the world he created. Now, we see this, obviously, God's providential love for all of humanity is seen in everyday life, right? The sun shines, the rain falls, people fall in love, get married, raise children, enjoy the fellowship of friends and family, enjoy God's blessing of life on human life, human earth, right? A common grace is available to everyone, Christian or non-Christian, if you live on planet Earth, God created an Earth that was designed for humans to enjoy, and that is evidence of God's love. However, God also specifically reveals his love for the world through his word, which tells us about his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God's love is so extreme that God even loves his enemies. And he's talking about you and me as his enemies, Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in what? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we go, yeah, I get that. Read the next verse. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled through the death of his son. Before salvation, you were not a neutral. You were a combatant against God. I definitely was. I wanted nothing to do with God's control because I wanted to be God, right? Didn't work really well, but I tried it for a number of years. Before salvation, we were at war with God, and God loved us as enemy combatants. On the cross, Jesus what? Prayed for his enemies, and he said what? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. So it begs the question. If God loves even his enemies, then how come he just doesn't save everyone? Just save them all. It's important you understand that God's love never negates his justice. God sent his only son to die in the sinner's place because it's the only way that he could uphold his perfect justice and holiness and simultaneously forgive sinners at the same time. His holiness requires that justice be done and sin be paid for. See, if God just overlooks sin, I can see some of us saying, well, I mean, he just doesn't forget about it. I mean, just kind of sweep it under the carpet, right? Just pretend it didn't exist. Well, 
If you have a loved one and someone murdered your loved one and they went to trial and the judge says, you know, I'm a merciful judge. We're just going to overlook this murder. Do your best. Try not to do it again. How would you feel about that judge? You would say, this is not a just judge. Justice was not done. So in order for God to be perfectly just and perfectly merciful, someone has to pay for the crime. God poured out his righteous justice on his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, so that he could give us his grace and mercy. So God is both perfectly just and completely loving at the same time. And this was the only way he could do both. People say, why did Jesus have to die? Really simple, because justice had to be done, and if justice wasn't done, you could not receive mercy. That's the motive. The object of salvation is the world, anyone in the world, whoever. It means all humanity without exception. There is no sinner who cannot be saved, because God loves the people he created. By the way, there's nothing in this verse to suggest that God's love is limited only to the elect those he's elected to save, although that is a true concept. God's love for the world is amazing. Not because the world's so big, but because the world's so bad, right? I mean, it's an amazingly bad place. God even loves the unlovables, which was us, yes? Jesus spent time with who? Lepers, prostitutes, criminals, tax collectors, the IRS, he spent time with people who he knew were going to vote for his execution. The world is every human being on planet Earth, past, present, and future. Now, the Jews believed that God loved them and only them because they were God's chosen people, and they believed that God hated everybody else, and that justified their contempt for the Gentiles. And many people today believe the same thing. Whenever you hear somebody say, well, God's on my side, that's fundamentally idolatrous because it says, I'm the center of the universe and God is my servant and he's on my side. Abraham Lincoln in the middle of the Civil War said, I'm not nearly so concerned that God is on my side. I am very, very concerned that I am on his side because God never comes to take sides. God takes over because he's God. He's the center. So when you have people say, well, God loves me and everybody that agrees with me and hates everybody that disagrees with me, that is enormously self-righteous pride. We should be focused on the, making the Lord the center, not ourselves. The reality is God loves every human being regardless of human distinction. Romans 10, 12. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, Jew and Gentile. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for what? All who call on him. Him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So we can't limit God's love or our love by self-righteousness. Now that's the motive. Now we talk about the action. The action of salvation is that he gave his only begotten son. The Greek word for begotten, by the way, is monogenes. M-O-N-O-G-E-N-E-S. Monogenes. Mono is one. Genesis is genetics. One genetics. It means that Jesus Christ was one of a kind, only one, one and only, unique, right? So God gave his one and only, his one of a kind, his unique, his beloved son. It also says that God and the Father and God the Son have identical natures, which we know. Interesting word that's almost always overlooked. It's the second word in the sentence. God so loved. The word so is a word of degree, a word of extent, a work of intensity. It's a word that talks about the scope. The extent of God's love for the world is measured by the gift he gave. Yes? His one and only son. Now the measure of love is its willingness to sacrifice for the benefit of the loved one. You know someone loves you to the extent that they're willing to sacrifice for you. Amen? The greater the sacrifice, the greater the love. 
Jesus said what? Just before his crucifixion, John 15, greater love has no one than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends, and which he proceeded to do in a matter of hours. God the Father loved the world with such intensity that he sacrificed that which was most dear to him, his one and only, his unique, his beloved son who died in the place of the sinner. That is a love that, quite frankly, I don't comprehend. That is a holy mystery that I come to, and I just fall on my face and I worship because I don't know what else to do. I have no comprehension of that kind of love. The means of salvation, how do you access this, is belief. It's not talking about the intensity of belief, it's talking about the object of belief. You can intensely believe something which is wrong, and you get nowhere. The belief system we're talking about here is personal trust that the Lord Jesus Christ died in my place on the cross, paid the penalty for my sins, and was resurrected from the dead to conquer sin and death. Let's unpack the word believe. It it, it literally means trust or belief. Now, saving faith is not just an emotional response. Saving faith requires knowledge. You have to have knowledge of who Jesus is, what he stands for, what he claimed to be, what he claimed to do. Two, it says you not only have to have knowledge, you have to have agreement. I not only know who he is, what he came to do, I agree with who he is and what he came to do. And it also requires, number three, commitment, which means I not only intellectually understand, I not only intellectually agree, I commit my will, I commit my whole life to a personal trust and a personal Savior, Jesus Christ, to save me. Now, John 1 tells us that whoever received Christ, another word for believe, to those he gave the right to become children of God. The... Let me give you a little word picture. When you um, have a dinner party or you're going to invite guests over and they come ring the doorbell, you open the door and you what? Welcome them into your home. You receive them into your home. You treat them as an honored guest and you have dinner, whatever you're going to do. We choose in the same way to receive Christ into our heart, the home of our soul, if you will. The object of our belief is Christ. And it says, whoever believes in him, it literally means whoever believes into him, into Christ. We put our faith, our confidence, our trust into him. So you are all exercising vast faith right now because you're sitting in a chair and you have placed your entire weight on the chair. Every single one of you trusts that that chair will hold you up. When you come to Christ as Savior, you place the full weight of your life, the full weight of your future, you place the full weight of your eternal destiny on Christ. You trust that he will save you and not let you fall and carry you through this life and through eternity. So it's a commitment of your will to place your faith in Christ, to forgive your sins and depend only on him. God gives us free will. To choose to believe, to understand, to agree, and to commit, or to choose not to. In 1859, the Frenchman Charles Blondin crossed 160 feet above Niagara Falls on an 1,100-foot tightrope. That's a long tightrope, 1,100 feet, about a fifth of a mile. He crossed multiple times. One time he crossed blindfolded, one time he crossed in a sack, a gunny sack. One time he crossed on stilts. One time he crossed on a bicycle. One time he crossed pushing a wheelbarrow. And the story is told, of course, there's great crowds on either end of the rope, you know. He, he asked the crowd if they believed that he could put a person into the wheelbarrow and push them to the other side on the tightrope. And everybody said, of course you can. We've seen you do it. Until he asked for a volunteer to get in the wheelbarrow. <laughs> no one volunteered which means they really didn't believe. They intellectually believed because they had seen him do it, but they weren't willing to put their weight in the wheelbarrow, their whole life in the wheelbarrow, their whole future in the wheelbarrow, and let him push them across Niagara Falls. 
Faith is getting into God's wheelbarrow. It's putting the full weight of your life on Christ. It is trusting your past, present, and eternal destiny to Christ alone. Now, coming to Christ for salvation involves at least two things. One, repentance from sin, and two, faith in Christ at the same time. Repentance means I'm doing a 180. I'm turning away from sin, and I'm turning to Christ in faith. Repentance means what I'm forsaking. Faith is what I'm embracing, and that happens at the same time. You don't repent before you come to Christ. The Holy Spirit works in your life, gives you new life. You repent from sin and place faith in Christ at the same time. So instead of loving our sin and hating Christ, we now hate our sin and love Christ and want to live for Him. So why would God make the human role in salvation so simple? Why would He make it so simple? Just believe and receive the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. Well, number one, as we've seen the first ten verses, salvation is God's work, not our work. People say, well, I decided to become saved. No, God worked in your heart long before you woke up and made that choice of faith. Salvation is God's work. Number two, since our role in salvation is simply trusting what he has already done, salvation's from the Lord, we're simply trusting what he's already done, who gets the glory? He gets the glory. Who deserves the glory? He deserves the glory. That's why faith is so simple. So what's the result? The result of salvation is eternal life. And there's two, comp two components of eternal life. One, negatively, shall not perish, right? Perish here means eternal ruin. It means separated from God forever in hell. It's not annihilation. It is not cessation of existence. It is conscious existence, eternal conscious existence, separated from God in a place the Bible calls hell. No one spoke more about hell in the entire Bible than our Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Matthew 25, there's multiple passages. Jesus describes hell as outer darkness, eternal fire, eternal punishment, a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, an eternal furnace. I mean, there's lots of descriptions that our Lord Jesus Christ himself used. The Savior of the world is the authoritative source of our information on heaven and hell. But the motive of God is to save, not to condemn. God takes no pleasure in pouring out his righteous wrath on sin and sinners. Ezekiel 18.28, God is speaking to Israel. He says, do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord, rather than that he should turn from his ways and live? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, says the Lord. Therefore, repent and live. This is the great heart of God who says, I want you to repent. I want you to be saved. I want that so much that I sent my son to pay the sin debt so that you could repent and save because I do not take pleasure in punishment. I do not take pleasure in people rejecting me. So God has made a way for sinners not to perish. That doesn't mean God's going to violate their free will. God gave you free will. God gave everyone free will. He says, I love you enough to choose. Everyone will either do one of two things. They'll either reject God's Son as their personal Savior, or they'll accept. That's the continental divide. So that's the negative, eternal life, not perishing, but have eternal life. Eternal life is the life of God. It is a transcendent life. It's supernatural life. It's God's life. It's an intimate personal relationship with God forever. Jesus defined this in a prayer to his heavenly father the night before he was crucified, John 17, 3. He says, this is eternal life. This is the definition of eternal life. That they, people, may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now the Jews divided time into two segments. This present age, the one we're in now, time and space, and the age to come. And they believed that eternal life was the life experienced after you were resurrected from the dead. 
And before Christ, that's absolutely correct. However, John portrays eternal life as something people can experience in some measure right now in this age on earth. See, when we think of eternal life, we automatically think it means limitless quantity of time. You know, eternal means forever. Actually, eternal life is both an infinite quantity of time, but it's also a completely different quality of time. Eternal life is life in Christ. It is Christ's life in you. And as a Christian who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ, at the moment of salvation, God the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence in your life. You have God's life in you, divine life, transcendent life, supernatural life in you right now. So you all are in a state of eternal life as we speak. Eternal life, Jesus said, is abundant life. I came that you might have life and might have it abundantly. It's perfect life. It's full of joy. Infinite pleasures forevermore. So let me summarize. God, the greatest lover, so loved the greatest degree, the world, the greatest number, that he gave the greatest act, his only begotten son, the greatest gift, that whosoever, the greatest invitation, believes the greatest simplicity, in him the greatest person, should not perish the greatest deliverance, but the greatest difference, have the greatest certainty, eternal life, the greatest possession. You have it in one verse. Verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Here's the principle. Jesus did not come to condemn sinners, but to convert them and save them from spiritual death. Jesus did not come to condemn sinners, but to convert them and save them from spiritual death. Jesus didn't come to kill the world. He came to cure the world. Um, Right now, at least as of last year, the five leading causes of death in the United States are heart disease, cancer, respiratory diseases, stroke, and unintentional or or accidental injuries. Each year, these five diseases kill about 900,000 people. Here's what's terrifying. Between 20 and 40% of these diseases are preventable which means that personal behavior changes could prevent premature death for between two and 300,000 people. Why would anyone choose to die early if they could prevent it? Many don't believe that their personal everyday decisions, like biscuits and gravy five days a week, are having long-term catastrophic outcomes on their health. Far worse than physical death is spiritual death, separation from God for all eternity. See, God's motivation was not condemnation, it was salvation. Son of man came to what? Seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus came to reveal God's grace and mercy and save sinners from his righteous wrath against sin. Here's what's tragic beyond comprehension. Going to hell is preventable. It's not obligatory. You can avoid it. Everyone deserves judgment because everyone has sinned. But Jesus came into a world that was already condemned in order to save some. Verse 18. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Here's the principle. People do not go to hell because they sin. They go to hell because they refuse to trust in Christ's payment for their sin. Let me say that again. People do not go to hell because they sin. They go to hell because they refuse to trust in Christ's payment for their sin. Many people reject the gospel because they have a faulty view of themselves and a faulty view of God. Most people on planet Earth, if not all all sinners before the work of the Holy Spirit, all people before the work of the Holy Spirit think they are morally good. Or at least neutral. I'm not as bad as, you know, X, Y, Z. So, 
The fact that God sent Jesus Christ to save people doesn't apply to them because they don't need saving, right? If humans are already good, then God judging them seems really unfair. But God says, all of sin falls short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. See, the reality is God would be perfectly just to send everyone to hell right now because everyone has rebelled against him from the moment of birth. We have a sin nature. So from God's point of view, sending the Savior to earth is an act of incredible mercy. But if you don't believe you're going to perish, then you don't need a Savior. And that's the world we live in. So what's the cause of God's judgment? Why would God judge people? Well, it's not being a sinner. You're not judged because you're a sinner. Sinners can be saved. You and I are sinners, amen? And we are saved. Not based on our righteousness, based on his righteousness. Judgment comes when people fail to believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God. They don't go to hell for how they behave, they go to hell for how they believe. They don't go to hell for what they do, they go to hell for what they refuse to do. They refuse to believe in Christ, who a loving God sent to pay for their sin debt and give them eternal life. J.C. Ryle said, quote, Nothing is so provoking and offensive to God as to refuse the glorious salvation he has provided at so mighty a cost by the death of his only begotten son. Nothing is so suicidal on the part of man as to turn away from the only remedy that can heal his soul. Only way God's verdict of judgment can be reversed and sin be forgiven is what? Except by faith Christ's payments for your sin. Because all sin is forgivable through Christ. What is not forgivable is refusing to accept Christ's payments for your sin, right? There is no other way into heaven except through Christ. When someone says, I don't need a Savior, what they're saying is they're telling God, my own self-righteousness is good enough for you. What that does is elevate their righteousness and de-elevate God's holiness. That is arrogance beyond comprehension. I know a lot of people who go, well, I'm not really mad at God. He's just kind of irrelevant. That is arrogance. You're breathing his air, fool. <laughs> the fact that you have not a cerebral hemorrhage and stroked out of here is his grace. How dare you say, I don't need him. I'm talking to me. That was me. The last judgment, the great right throne, takes place in Revelation 20. Revelation 20, verse 12. John says, And I saw the dead, the great and the small, all equal, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things were written in the books according to their deeds. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, God is a perfectly just God. God's going to open the books and everyone's life history is going to be comprehensively transparent. Every motive, every thought, every word, every deed, everything you did, everything you didn't do is going to be recorded. Everything about every life is going to be completely illuminated because God is omniscient and he knows and he sees everything, right? The very record of each person's life will demonstrate the reality of Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short. And if you want evidence, God will open the books and say, it is patently evident, and every sinner will say, that is true. I have fallen short. After God views the entire record of every life, then he opens the book of life. Revelation 21, there's a number of references, and I'm just giving you one. Revelation 21, 27, talking about the heavenly city. Nothing unclean, no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, talking about the new Jerusalem, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So God then opens the book of life, which is the record of every soul that God has elected to save and who has responded by faith and believed and received 
in Jesus Christ to forgive their sins. And if their name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, their own refusal to believe in Christ is what condemns them to hell. Everyone in hell has chosen to be there. I am utterly amazed at people who say, well, I'm going to spend eternity with God because I'm a good person. I just don't want anything to do with him now. And I'm going, if you can't stand him for seven years, how are you going to stand him for eternity? Right? It's arrogance. God has made a way for everyone to escape hell, but most refuse to accept his gracious offer. You ask yourself, why would anybody refuse God's gracious offer of salvation and forgiveness? Verse 19. This is the judgment. At the light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Here's the principle. People who refuse Christ's free gift of salvation love their sin and refuse to give it up. People who refuse Christ's free gift of salvation love their sin and refuse to give it up. Sinners not only live in sin, they love their sin. And they prefer moral darkness because they want to hide their sin. They not only love their sin, they hate Jesus and his people. Because the light of God's holiness, what? Shines a light on their own darkness and their own moral depravity and convicts them of sin and makes them feel guilty and they don't want to feel guilty. Early in Jesus' ministry, he told his disciples, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because what? I testify that their deeds are evil. A little later on in his ministry, he said, John 15, 18, if the world hates you, you know that it's hated me before it hated you. So if you follow Jesus, unrighteous people who love their sin don't like you most often because they don't want to be convicted. You need to understand something. Most unbelief is grounded in immorality. Most unbelief is grounded in immorality. People love their sin and they don't want to stop it. So they construct arguments to justify their behaviors. They have all sorts of philosophical arguments. Evolution, of course, was one of Satan's great schemes to give people an excuse to eliminate any sort of judgment so they could sin at pleasure, you know, get away with it, they thought. They don't want to hear the gospel, and some people will avoid you because they feel guilty when they're around you. You know why? Because you have the Holy Spirit, and they smell it. They know there's holiness in your life, and they feel guilty because they have habits. Sometimes it's their mouth, sometimes it's their behaviors, and they don't want to be convicted of sin, so they, they want to keep God's people away. That used to be me. I resemble that. I am that before Christ. The word evil here means their deeds are evil. It means worthless. It means vain. It means futile. People that refuse Jesus live lives that are worthless from an eternal perspective. They may be rich and famous here, but you know when they die, everything stays here. It's utterly amazing to me you know, at the end of the year, a lot of times the news media will say, people we lost this year. You know, the rich and the famous. They never talk about Joe the plumber who died. They talk about the rich and the famous. And you know something? Every one of them died. And everything is here. And you know how, you know how fleeting fame is? It's fleeting. No one will remember us after we're gone. That's okay. As long as Jesus remembers and the saints in glory remember what the world thinks about you, yeah, they don't think about you anyway. They think about themselves. So people that pursue the things of this world and reject the light, they have no eternal meaning. They have no purpose. And so they chase more and more things in this life thinking it's going to provide satisfaction. Don't waste your life pursuing trinkets on earth when you could have treasures in heaven, for goodness sake. In contrast to those who love the darkness and reject the light is verse 21. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as have being wrought in God. Here's the principle. 
People who are forgiven by Christ want to fellowship with Christ every day. Sometimes more than once a day, right? People who are forgiven by Christ want to fellowship with Christ. Here's the reality. Both believers and unbelievers are guilty because we sin. The difference between the sinner and the saint is their attitude toward the light of Jesus Christ. The unbeliever runs from the light because they're hanging on to their sin. The Christian runs to the light and lets go of their sin. It doesn't mean we won't sin, but what we do is what? Confess it. Confess it. Confess it. The follower of Jesus wants to be exposed to the truth because they want to confess their sins so they can have God remove it. You know, one of the things I've always been attracted about this church is this church has always had a passion to say what God says, period. And then we adjust our lives around his word. We don't make God's word say what we want it to say. We say, what does God say, and how do we adapt our lives to it? There are people who will not come to this church because they want a little more shade for their sin. And when you come here, the floodlight of God's word is pretty bright. And God does not coddle our sin. He loves us so much, he's going to do surgery and take that cancer out of your heart. The benefits of being in the light of God's presence. I mean, how many benefits are there being in the light of God's presence? Peace, power, purpose, forgiveness, security, comfort. You can just make a list of the blessings that's in your life because you have a relationship with the living Christ. And he says, when you practice the truth, when you do what you know, when you live in accordance with what God told you, it's obvious to everyone that the works in your life come from God. And that is true. If you knew me before Jesus, you would say there is nothing in this life that he's currently doing that is explainable by anything other than the Holy Spirit because I'm a self-centered little pig in my flesh. That's true. And that's true for you too because there are people that you know who have not come to Christ and you can look back 20, 30 years and see how far has the Lord brought you? How far has the Lord shaped you into the image of his son in the last 20 years? You go, I'm not there yet. That's correct, you're not there, but you're a lot further along because of God's faithfulness in your life over the decades and he's not done yet. So God presents eternal choices and eternal consequences in this passage, and they are really the great divide for all eternity. If you believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died in your place to pay the penalty for your sins, you will be forgiven by God, saved from God's judgment, and you will inherit eternal life with God in heaven forever. On the other hand, if you refuse to believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died in your place to pay the penalty for your sin, God will judge you according to your own deeds, which will condemn you to spend eternity separated from God in hell. Now, that's about as clear as you can make it. That's the decision that people are facing. And every single person in your life, including yourself, is on one side of the divide and on the other side of the divide. So this week... As you go, as the Lord leads, he will bring people into your life. And, of course, we're impressed with how people look, how they smell, how they talk, how they act, how, they, you know, how much money they have, how nice they are, whatever it happens to be. All of that is fluff. We need to see them as Jesus sees them. Do they know Jesus as their Savior? Are they going to wind up in heaven, or are they headed on the direction toward hell? And that should be our passion, our prayer, that God would open our eyes to help us see where they are and what they spiritually need. We know what they need. They need the Savior. And if they're saved, they need more of the Savior. Right? God is just amazing. amazing. We've seen that word amazing grace. The older you get in the Lord, the more you understand your sinfulness, the more His grace is amazing. Let's summarize, then Tom will lead us in prayer and praise. The first principle is obviously the simplest one. I encourage you to really think about and 
Pray through John 3.16. I know you know it. I know you memorized it. I know you think you understand it. I'm convinced we don't understand it. We understand the surface truth, and it is true, but it goes eternally deep. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. May I say something in just parentheses here? We've got a couple of minutes. When you're talking to people about the Savior, you're wasting your time if they don't understand they're a sinner. We go to people and go, well, Jesus can change your life. He can give you peace. He can give you everything you ever wanted, man. He can help you accomplish all your goals. What's that about? That's not the gospel. That's saying God is your servant. Accept Jesus and man, he'll make your life whatever you want it to be. Not. Talking about a savior is irrelevant if they're not convinced they're a sinner who needs a savior. You don't need rescuing if your life is working fine. Jesus talked to Nicodemus who had lived a humanly, standard-wise, perfect life, and he said, you're not getting into heaven unless you're born again which means God's going to have to do a work in your life. You're a sinner, and all your good deeds are filthy rags in God's sight. Until people are at that point, they look at you and they go, well, this salvation business is pretty optional. I'm okay. I'm okay with God. You know, whether I receive him or not receive him, my righteousness is good enough. Not true. Pray about that. Number two, Jesus didn't come to condemn sinners but to convert them and save them from spiritual death. So if Jesus came to love people, how should we respond to the lost? We should love them, not judge them. We should love them and pray for them and invest in them. And by the way, sometimes that's years. We go, well, they didn't pray the prayer. Salvation's far more than praying a prayer. You may need to love people for 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years and pray for them every day. Jesus didn't give up on us. Amen? Number three, people don't go to hell because they sin. We all sin. They go to hell because they refuse to trust in Christ's payment for their sin. So Christians aren't perfect, but we are forgiven. Not because we're deserving forgiveness. I am no better than anyone else. I'm class A1 sinner like everybody else. I'm forgiven because of God's grace. And people you love can be forgiven by God's grace too. People who love their sin hate Christ and refuse his free gift of salvation. When someone rejects you, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting the Savior you serve. And they're rejecting his holiness. You're in very good company. Don't take it personally. Love them and pray for them. And lastly, people who are forgiven by Christ want to fellowship with Christ every day. It's not just I'm forgiven, now I get to go live my life. It's I'm forgiven, and because I'm forgiven, my heart is filled with gratitude, and I want to spend every moment I can with my Savior and ask Him to fill me and use me to accomplish His purposes in this life. I love you all. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.